Good morning, Chair City Church. How are you today? Uh, good to see all of you, man. Good group. It is an exciting morning. We thank God for what he's doing. Just hard to, you know, couldn't, couldn't fathom that the day would come where I'd sit there and listen to Chrissy tell you that we have made that building ours. And it is ours, huh? People yeah. walk in there, just, you know, anytime someone walks in there for the first time, they're just so impressed. And literally, some, some people use the word amazing to describe what's going on in there. And I just want to thank all of you for all your hard work, all your generosity, all your giving. I'll repeat that later on. Now we got some glare going up. You know, someone texted me and said, you know, hey, hey Dave, it's, it, you're kind of really in the dark up there and it's a little distracting, you know, to try and follow you. I said, really, could it be that bad? I don't know. So I went and I uh, sat, I came and I watched the worship team practice morning, so let me see what it's like. And man, like, they're up here, they're in the dark. And I can't believe you've been looking at me for three weeks and you don't even see me. I've kind of felt a little insulted, like, you're good with that? Nobody said anything to me? So we'd rather, we, we, it's good to me hear you, but we don't see you? Oh, man, I tell you. So, uh, so I scrambled this morning, and we got a floodlight. We'll, we'll amp it up and we'll improve it. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll try and improve it for next week. We have three more weeks in here, so we will make the best of it. I appreciate your, your patience. Now, I want to welcome everyone to week three of our current teaching series, Swimming Upstream. If you're joining us for the first time, and usually the people that are, huh? You know, this series, we call it Swimming Upstream because it's kind of a, it's, we're jumping into the book of Daniel. Uh, you know, what the Bible teaches us and instructs us and talks about in this book of Daniel. Now, the, book, the Bible is two parts, Old Testament and New Testament, and the book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all that happened in this world before Jesus was born, and the New Testament is the birth of Jesus and on through the life of Christ and then the beginning and the establishment of the church, meaning you and I, that's still going on today to God be the glory. And no, it's still going on today, right? And I'll jump back to that later on in my message. Now, so Daniel, you know, we call, we call this swimming upstream because Daniel was about 14 years old when he was taken from his homeland, from his family, huh? and he was brought into captivity in Babylon by the Babylonian Empire, modern-day Iraq now. And he lived there from 14 till, till the time of his death, somewhere up in his 80s. And that, during that time, Daniel lived, according to the Bible, which we believe is true, lived a godly life in an ungodly culture. Huh? He followed God's decrees, his commands, his instructions, in spite of being in a culture that kind of didn't value it and in cases despised it and would come against it. Huh? Now, like Daniel, we live in what we would call kind of an ungodly world, meaning a culture that's not warm and welcoming often to the things of God, maybe not accepting of it, maybe scoffs at it, maybe simply will just come against it, right? And like Daniel, we're under this pressure from time to time. Are we going to compromise our faith, let alone shelve it, or are we going to hold to that faith? As the song was saying, are we going to stand for our faith and not go with the flow of the culture? So the question is, in this series, how do we live a godly life in an ungodly world? Huh? And how will we resist cultural pressure? How will we stay, how will we stay true to God? How we will not how will we not often give into the path or choose the path of least resistance? We do that a lot, right? Now today, in, the, in trying to answer these questions continually through this series, today we're going to jump, we're going to kind of 
go into chapter 2 of the book of Daniel a little bit. We're going to revisit chapter 3, same portion we were in last week. I just thought there was more there, so I want to go back into that same area of Scripture. Uh, 3, if you weren't here last week, you're going to be able to follow it. But in, in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, we read about King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he's the ruler of Babylon, and he's having this dream, and the dream is just taunting him, huh? And he's having this dream of a magnificent statue. The Bible describes it. The head was made of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its bellies and its thighs were made of bronze, its legs and its feet are kind of made out of iron and clay. Now the king's haunted by the dream, and he desires to know the meaning of it. So although many people fail to give him the meaning, like this is impossible, it's, but, he, but Daniel now interprets a dream, and he tells the king that the head of gold represented him, King Nebuchadnezzar, and his kingdom. Boy, did King Nebuchadnezzar like that, right? All smiles, man, right? But then Daniel goes on to explain that the other parts of the statue represents the future. Looking forward, the other kings and their kingdom. Meaning what Daniel is telling King Nebuchadnezzar is that someday, maybe sooner than later, King, your kingdom is going to come down. Your kingdom is coming to an end. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar wants nothing to do with that, right? I mean, he is the leader of the worldwide kingdom. One of the greatest empires known in the history of the world, the Babylonian Empire. And he wanted that empire and his reign to last forever. So, in defiance of what Daniel tells him that God had revealed to him, we read in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So, so much for a head of gold, right? Nebuchadnezzar erects a 90-foot statue made entirely of gold of him. And this is how he's now defying the God of heaven. This is Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, God, I'll show you my empire will last and no one's going to take it from me. So... We read now in verse 2, he, Nebuchadnezzar, then summons the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So as he defies God, Nebuchadnezzar calls all of the officials together, right? And he announces to them that Babylon and its gods will reign and rule across the earth forever. Babylon is not going to be temporary, temporarily on top, but rather Babylon will be on top, king of the hill, indefinitely. And this was the reason and why he made the whole statue of gold versus just the head. You know, we see this from the very beginning of the history of the human race. We see God making men and women in his image, right? And we see continually men and women making gods in their image, right? You'll see this. Men and women turning and trying to fabricate, create these gods that, will, that they can worship, that will tell them what they want, that will seemingly give them what they want. Sometimes even people who worship the one true God will attempt to kind of emotionally and intellectually kind of conform and contort God to fit what they want him to be, huh? We do that, you know? 
to fit our preferences, our lifestyle. We, we see this mix. You, you will off, and we see it in the small cases. We see it. It's really kind of one of the difficult, one of the, I call them as a plague of Christendom, is that people will do this. So here's my life, so here's my way, and, and now we're going to contort God to it. In a sense, they're kind of making their own God. You, you'll see this happen a lot. We talk about this in psychology where often when people behave in kind of a peculiar way, sometimes disturbing, erratic, unexplicable, like really, whoa, right? They attach God to it. God told me to do that, right? <laughs> okay, right? You know? God, what, why did you do that? What were you thinking? God told me. God told me to do that. I got a vision of God. I had a dream and God told me, right? You know? We hear it all the time, you know? And what are they doing? They're, they're bringing this God over, huh? But let's just worship the one true God. Let's not make images. He said, well, let's not make anything. Look, you were created to worship. We talked about it last week. We were created to worship. We're going to worship something. Something is going to get the ultimate of our, of our passions and, and, and our, our desires, you know? Some, it, it's going to happen. What and who is that going to be? My prayer for you today is that it will be the one true God, not any particular person. You can have passion and affections and care, but nothing you would give nothing more to any one thing or any one career or anything other than the one true God. Huh? So now I want to let you know that Daniel is not at this kind of ribbon cutting ceremony because as we read earlier, you know, Daniel in interpreting the dream, now he gets promoted, right? And he's now, well, we'll read about it in Daniel chapter 2, verse 49. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's Jewish friends, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So that was Daniel's reward. For interpreting the dream, the king gave him a place and a position at the royal court. So Daniel's not at this come and worship me event for the king, right? But his friends are there. Now, I want you to notice something, and I want you to pause and consider the thought process of King Nebuchadnezzar and how we can sort of have a similar, very similar thought process here today, you and I. And I'm right in there with you. Nebuchadnezzar is considering his destiny here. So when Daniel is interpreting the dream and Daniel tells him what's going on, and he's already had, without all the details, he's had different gauges of how to verify that this guy Daniel knows what he's talking about and that others were failing to interpret the dream. So now he knows this is legit. And as Daniel's telling him, hey, this is the future, this is what's coming, King Nebuchadnezzar starts to consider his destiny. And he's thinking about what's going to happen to him in the future. He's, you know, that's what, that's what destiny is. And as a result of his thinking he's of the future, he's significantly affected. And I'm going to add in a negative way. And this now is impacting his current decision-making process, right? We often hear, we will talk about, or even, we'll, you know, we refer to it, or we'll dig deep about anxiety, depression, uh, anger, worry, regret. We'll dig there, right? But often these kind of, what I consider often negative and maladaptive behaviors, right? Emotions, they often are provoked or come on us when we're thinking about the future. You, you track that, this, you track it today. You go this week and think often when you're feeling nervous, when you're feeling a little disturbed, when you're feeling a little down or depressed, when you're feeling, more than not, you are thinking about the future. 
How can I make it without so-and-so by my side? What will happen when I retire? Can I pay for this and that one's college? Will I be by myself forever? Can I make it through this school and graduate from this college? What, can I get a job that, wow, on and right? We're, we're there, man. We often see so much through that lens. And this is provoking to these kind of negative emotions and negative thoughts, you know? So sometimes messing up our future I mean, sometimes thinking about the future can mess up our current life, right? Even in the midst of some good things going on. I can remember watching my little girl play basketball. She's good. I mean, she's, she's tough, man. She's gritty, right? You know, she's like her dad in this case, you know? Christy's not gritty, as you figured out. But, uh, you know, she is. She's strong when she gets on that court, but she's calm. She's, she's, she is. She's calm. She keeps her composure, but she will not back down. Right? She holds her place, and, and I'm watching. I'm taking it in, and... All of a sudden, I'm thinking about, you know, her getting older and, 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 and getting married. I'm like, man, I'm, how am I going to pay for her wedding, you know? I always thought I'd pay for my daughter's wedding. I got two now, and I don't even think I'd pay for one wedding, you know? And, and well, maybe how much can I contribute to her wedding? What can I do for her? And, and I'm really, like, getting digging in on this, you know? And then I'm thinking, oh, no, is she going to want me to marry her? Whoa, you know? I'll be a mess. How am I going to do that? I don't think, how am I going to tell her no if she wants me to marry her, right? And but I'm thinking, wait a minute, if I'm paying for the wedding and I marry her, maybe I can give myself a big tip, right? And it'll work out well. <laughs> but, you know, you, you just get there. You go there, right? You, we're thinking about the future. You know, God did not intend for us to focus on future events in this life without including him in the center of that picture, right? Our picture would change quickly. God, thank you for my little girl. Lord, I just, look at what you're doing right now in her life. Look at her out there. Lord, I know you're with her. And God, I know when these days come that you will be with her. And God, may I just see you in those moments. May I continually thank you, oh God, for what you're doing in my child's life. May I continually pray for this child, oh God. Right, right. Totally different view now. I am, I am looking at the future with God in the center of it, right? You do that and see what it does for these Negative emotions and negative thoughts, huh? Mostly, see how it just makes you aware of the presence of God and your ability to hear him as he speaks into your life. Now, so, now Nebuchadnezzar, he's being negatively affected by future, the thought of future events, and he decides to have this worship me party, right? He invites a bunch of important people. So Daniel chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, actually we'll go 3 through 6. So the satraps, prefects, governors, we're going to do this again, advisors, treasuries, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. I mean, everybody who's anybody is there. So that's like you're in downtown Gardner, you're out here somewhere in a kind of an important place, and you got the mayor there, you got some council members there from the city, you got like a Patriot player there and a Red Sox player there and like some TV guy. Wow, you know, the news is there. And you're there right in the midst of all of them, right? Anybody who's everybody, maybe an employer, boss, it says there, they all stood before it, the statue. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, we don't know what a zither is. And I'm not going to take the time to find out, right? I don't know who the greatest Zyther player. Eddie Van Halen was the greatest guitar player, but I don't know who the greatest Zyther player is. The lyre, the harp, the pipes of all kinds of music. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown 
into a blazing furnace. Wow. So here now in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face this moral dilemma. Do we bow down and worship a statue that represents both King Nebuchadnezzar and his gods? And, and I tell you, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't bluffing. He's a mean guy, right? He had a reputation for throwing people in the fire. We read in the book of Jeremiah in the 29th chapter, we read of two poor souls who the king of Babylon burned alive, huh? So this was a common method of punishment for King Nebuchadnezzar. So we read in verse 7, chapter 3, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, for most of the people there, this command to bow down and worship this image created was not a moral dilemma. It wasn't a problem. Babylon was a polytheistic society. That means they worshipped all different gods. They believed in many gods. So when commanded to bow down and worship just another one, they didn't even blink. Not a big deal. Let's get this over it and let's do business. Let's hang out. Let's socialize, right? And, and King Nebuchadnezzar sees that. He knows that. And he's pleased as he looks around. He gazes across this big crowd, right? And he sees a united kingdom. And that's important because he knows a divided kingdom cannot stand. So when he sees this, he's like, my kingdom will last forever. My plan is working. And now we see that his pleasure is short-lived, though. And we read in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, at this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. That is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He calls them out and he says to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of God, the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your God nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. So two things are going on here. One, these young Jewish men have rejected the king's authority, hence... They pay no attention to you, O king. And two, they've rejected the king's God, meaning they neither serve your God, king, or this image of gold. So now we're not talking about violating the speed limit here, right? This is serious stuff. They not only disobeyed the king, they're now rejecting his gods. And in front of who's who, right? And talk about bad timing on the part of these young men. The king's trying to unite his empire. He's trying to establish that which is most important to him, Right? And now he finds disunity in front of everyone. This is not going to be well received. And we see that in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men are brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music. We should have did something with that. If you, are ready to, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Going to give you a shot here, guys. 
then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand, says King Nebuchadnezzar. He's asking, what God will rescue you from my hand? Now, if you're an Israelite living in Babylon at this time, man, you are biting your nails listening to this story, right? On one hand, it would just be easy to go with the flow, right? I mean, bow down, worship it. I mean, it's not a real God anyway, right? And if they bow down, I mean, just we're talking like what? Like 30 seconds, five seconds, a minute, you know, I got it. You can even make believe you drop something and like you really didn't bow down, right? We could just go on with this day, huh? I mean, besides, how could we be salt and light, right, if we're dead, huh? I mean, we're not going to be no good to anyone. So what harm could we do? I mean, we could just like kind of bow down now and, and then go and help somebody, right? We could compromise giving, shelve this baby for like, I mean, I mean, 30 seconds, a minute, and then go on and do something good, you know? Kind of take care of that collateral damage, if you will, if that is worded well, huh? But... So you can see how it could have been so easy for them to justify their bowing in front of not just the king, but everybody. But then on the other hand, you've got God's command in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, which says, you shall not bow down to them, that is idols, or worship them. God says, you shall not, do not bow down and worship any idol. This, of course, is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was commanding them to do. If they obey God's commandment, the king says, I'm going to throw you into this blazing furnace. Huh? So what are they going to do? Well, chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. And that's what the, you know, the, the New Testament, you might see a couple of verses, a few verses, and you know, there's a point. The Old Testament is like a story. It's a narrative. And from that whole narrative, you get like one or two points at times. Huh? Well, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replies to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Whoa, okay. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, I love the but here, man, even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So the king asked them a question. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He's challenging them. So Daniel's friends, the three guys, young men, says the God we serve is able to save us. You know? They're not saying that God will save them. They're saying that God is able to do it. And if he desires and wishes to do, he will do that, right? But after answering the king's question, they let the, know, they let the king know, hey, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship you or your statue or your gods. Well, it didn't go over well, right? It didn't go over good, huh? Nebuchadnezzar, ninth, verse, chapter 3, verse 19 through 23, huh? Here we go. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see this repetitiveness? People often say, well, how did they record things with uh, legitimacy and accuracy in the Bible? You know, they didn't have any recorders. They didn't have any computers. They didn't even have good pens. Any. This is how they did it. Continue repetitiveness and repeating it. We, we have history of orators re remembering two and 3,000 words, memorizing it, right? This is how they were able to do it. That's why the Bible is reliable. It's accurate. So Nebuchadnezzar's furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. In other words, he said, stoke that baby up. 
he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up, and he throws them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, which is unusual, usually they'd strip you naked and torch you in, but he was so angry and so upset, he just wanted them thrown in as soon as possible, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody's watching. The king is flipping out. And the three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Mm. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the top of the furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar, the whack job he is, he's so angry he runs down to the bottom. He wants to see them scream and burn, right? He wants a front row seat to their horrific deaths. But man, he's disappointed, huh? Chapter 3, verse 24 through 25, King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement, in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Huh? So the king is perplexed. He's blown away. What's going on here? We threw three men in, but now they're four. They were bound. Now they're walking around free. Normally, when we throw people in, they're running around and they're screaming and yelling. But they're like unharmed. And besides, who's this fourth person? Now, some believe that the fourth person here is like an Old Testament appearance of Christ. That would be what we call a Christophany, you know. But really, verse 28 kind of talks about an angel, you know, that an angel was sent to deliver God's servants. So maybe it's kind of like an angel that's a type of Christ, not Christ himself. We can go on. I mean, people write like pages on this, okay? But what we do know is that God delivered Daniel's friends from the flames of furnace, right? God delivered Daniel's friends from the flames, just like Christ delivers us from the flames of hell. He does that. You're going to hear me talk about this heaven and hell thing. It's got to mean something to you. And this thing we call Christianity, huh? It's got to be in your head. It's got to be in your heart that there is a hell and there is a heaven, huh? Here's the point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not spared from the fire. The story here, the point here, is that they are with a divine being in the midst of the fire, right? You get that? The fire, God could have snuffed out the fire. He could have took, he could have taken up, but he did not. Instead, God became present. God displayed his presence with them in the middle of the fire. It's my favorite illustration. I'll probably toss it out there every year. It just meant so much to me. It's very simple. One day there was this guy, and, and, and he wanted this picture of peace. He wanted the perfect best picture that would illustrate peace. So he got some artists, and he got narrowed it down to the two best artists, and he gave them this big canvas. He goes, okay, have at it. And the first artist walks up, and he draws this, like, just kind of a, I call it a Windex sky, man, just clear blue, kind of birds, you know, flying through. Down below, he paints this just placid, calm lake. And in the lake, you see the reflection of some beautiful trees and bushes and flowers. Sun rays kind of just reflecting down, and he, and he says, that's peace. Next artist comes up to the canvas, gets a black paint, just starts slopping it on. 
Peter, dark sky, lightning bolting out of the sky, wind you could see just moving the trees and bending them, and leaves and branches breaking off and strewn, and the lake, the water's kind of just, just crashing up against the rocks and the, and the banks. And in the tree, one of them bending, he says, this nest, and in the nest he paints this little bird, and the bird is sleeping, and he says, that's peace, right? That's peace, that in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the storm, we know God is with us by faith. Her things hoped for, not seen. We know God is with us by faith. Huh? And we bow down and we worship him in the middle of all of that. Sometimes he calms the storm, sometimes he calms the child, right? Just by faith, trust in God. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fiery furnace, and everyone, including Nebuchadnezzar, gathers around him. I mean, I would do that, right? And Nebuchadnezzar now, he had issued that challenge at verse 15, right? When he said, what God's going to be able to rescue you? And he remembers that. And now he kind of gives this concession speech where he kind of, he accepts losing. People don't do that well anymore, but he accepts defeat, he accepts losing, and he gives this concession speech, right? And we see that in chapter 3, verse 28 through 29. Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any other god except their own god. He might even be going to dig him, respecting him. Who knows? Huh? Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. Great guy. For no other God can save this way, right? So he wraps up this concession speech to King Vicani, eating crow and admitting, man, there's no other God that does that. I mean, because what's he going to do? Everybody saw it, right? And now the story ends in verse 30. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He promoted them, and that's the story, huh? So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego remained faithful to their God, even to the point of death. And as a result, God rewards their faith, and they wind up being promoted. And now, once again, like Daniel, they rise to another level of leadership in Babylon. And, that, and that's, that's chapter 3. So now we want to ask ourselves, you know, what does this story teach us about an ungodly, living a godly life in an ungodly world? But I want to pause there. Because if you're coming in here for the first time, if you don't believe in God, you might be thinking, you know, cool story, but it's a fairy tale. Meaning it's just, it's just not true. And I'm, it's, I'm not saying I don't believe the whole Bible, but I just think that, you know, that's just kind of like, a, it, it was made up, you know? It was a story made up to kind of just bring forward some good principles. I, you know, well, consider this, right? Certainly, I can't fill all the gaps and voids there. And I say that because that's what I would think, and that's what I used to think, that this is kind of nonsensical. First, consider this, that some time ago, the French archaeologist, Aupère, probably said, Aupère, <laughs> sorry. They can't cook well, but they can dig. So the French archaeologist, Aupère, not French Canadians now, just people in France, okay? My wife scowled at me. I got to do something quick here. While digging, him and his team come across this, came across and discovered the base of the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
Yeah. It, he, he really did build this statue. The statue actually existed. They have uncovered the base of the statue. Okay. Okay, so, all right, that means that, means that, that, means that part of the story is true. And that really wasn't kind of messing with me, but, you know, this whole thing about, you know, the, this power and this God of power that he was able to do such a thing. Okay. Well, what about this? And again, I can't fill all the gaps, just give you something to chew on. What about that this was the Babylonian Empire? Before the Babylonian Empire, there was the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. What about the fact that Daniel was telling King Nebuchadnezzar, after, there's going to be other kingdoms after you. And he actually, the way, if you look, they know, by, you know the statue, that, and the way he describes them are attributes and characteristics that were dominant in these empires. Assyrian, which had, which were go, which had come already. Babylon, well, okay, that's obvious. But he actually then calls out the Medo-Persian, the Persian Empire. It calls out then the, 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 Greek, the Greek, the Grecian Empire. And he calls out the Roman Empire in this description. That's pretty good for a young Jewish kid. But how about this? How about when we talk about power and we talk about kind of something divine, something inexplicable, that right there you got these Jewish young guys. You got a smaller, much smaller Jewish population that's been torn apart, ripped apart, taken from their land. Their land's been taken over. They've been dispersed. And how about that the Assyrian Empire? You know what? I don't, you know any Assyrians? I don't know any Assyrians. You know anyone who actually is living out the tradition and the culture of, of, of Assyrians? I don't. What about Babylonians? You know any Babylonians? I don't know any Babylonians. And I know a lot of people. I'm from New York. I don't know any Babylonians. The Persians? I, I've seen movies about them. I crossed over the line and seen some inappropriate circles. I love the sponge. You ever see 300? You probably shouldn't. I loved the only class I ever paid attention to in like high school was a class taught by, by a great teacher. Uh, uh, about the Spartans. He would like stand on his desk, he'd throw races, he'd go crazy. Spartan was cool, okay. But I don't, I don't know any, I mean, I don't, I, when I go to Greek, I don't know anybody that actually worships the mythical gods anymore, right? And I run around, I don't know anybody that's practicing that Grecian empire, the traditions and the culture. Mm, Romans, I don't know anybody Roman. I don't know any Romans either from the, that actually are practicing and living out, you know, the leathers, or people wear leather skirts, but you get what I'm talking about. I don't, I don't see anything that exists directly in people living out that Roman empire. But what about the Jews? What about this smaller group of people? I know a lot of Jews, huh? And I know a lot of Jews that are living out the same truth we're reading about today. I know a lot of Jews that are living out and believing what the Old Testament teaches. And you know what? That whole Jewish thing, this whole story of the Bible, it kind of keeps going to Christ, and you get these other people called Christians, and it's the same story. We, we divide it up, but it's the same story and the same God. And I, I think I know some Christians, too, that practice and live all that was talking about here. So that's powerful, right? All those empires, the greatest empires known in the history of the world, are gone. People aren't living that, but here we today, we live to testify to the one true God, right? And that's just got to mean something. And as you weigh in, in your intellect, intellect is this a fairy tale? Is this false? Or is it true? All right, so let's now share a few truths, and then we're going to, we got to kick this out. we got to move quickly. Man, time's been flying lately. Less lights, less time. 
All right, so we're going to do this quick. All right, first thing is there's one thing we could look in here. You know, how to help us live a godly life in an ungodly culture. We're going to do this quickly. We'll wrap it up. One, earth is not our true home. These people, these young men, they were living in Babylon, but they knew that this was temporary, that permanently there was a home for them, huh? That their home was the promised land, not here. And even if they lived there forever, that wasn't going to be their home. Daniel lived to his death there, but it was never his home. His home was the promised land. And he wrote this to encourage those who were continually being taken into captivity to encourage the Jews that there's more to life than this. There's another day. This isn't your home. When they interviewed and talked to the survivors of the Holocaust, they saw this pattern of those Jewish men and women who survived the concentration camps that they didn't believe that this was it. This was not who they were. This was not their home, that there was going to be another day and that they were going to hold to God's promises that they would see that day. Huh? Now, in the same way, we are living here kind of as exiles on earth. The Bible couldn't be more clear if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. He said of his, to his followers in John chapter 17, verse 16, they do not belong to this world. Talk about you and I. And the Apostle Paul talks about Christians in the book of Philippians in chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, right? So these three verses show us that in a sense, we are exiles, we are aliens, huh? Heaven is our true home. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and now he is in heaven preparing that home for us. And this has got to mean something to you. It says in John chapter 14, verses 2 through 3, there is, Jesus is saying, there is more than enough room in my father's home. If, there were not, if this were not so, I would have told you, I would have told you, I am going to prepare, what I have told you, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. So when everything is ready, Jesus is going to come and get us. I believe that with all my heart. That's where I am. I believe that Jesus is preparing a place for me and for you and all those who trust in him and have confidence in him, right? Now we talk about that conversation, right? About the anxiety and the depression and the confusion. We mentioned how thinking about the future in a negative way can do that, right? Can, can bring that effect to us, and it does. It affects people. The decisions they make, the trajectory they go on in life. You know, they might want to be something in life. They might want to do things in life, but it's not your intention, but your direction that determines your destination, right? And your direction is often affected by this way of thinking of the future, huh? But what if you fixed your thoughts on heaven this morning? What if you considered the one true God, creators of heaven and earth, huh? The same God that delivered these Jewish men. That we have reason to believe this happened. What if you fixed your eyes, that your heart, that heaven is my home? And I am going to, when I think of the future, I will see this backdrop of heaven in all things. I will see God at the center of my future, no matter what it is. So maybe, I'm not saying you change possibilities. I'm not saying it might be a possibility that I can't afford Janelle's wedding. She ain't going to have an Italian wedding, I tell you right now. Unless my, my, maybe my grandparents can pay for their, her wedding too. They pay for my wedding, maybe they can pay for her wedding. 
right? I mean, I, there's so many questions when I look towards the future. Even when we started this church, I mean, there were days I would think about, when I took it, even a week ahead, a month from now is our future, a year from now. What if we just thought and put God in the midst of that thinking and considered heaven is the backdrop. My future is heaven, is eternity with my God. And God is at the center of everything that's going to happen in my future. It will change your life. And Daniel knew that, and that's why he wanted to tell these other Jews that were now being taken captive and that was going on, he wanted to tell them this truth because he knew he wanted the Jews to continue, and he knew it was God's coming and his promise that it would happen. All right, next, Daniel encourages us that Jesus is with us in the fire. You see that? Listen, Daniel's trying to let the Jews know that, look, in the midst of all this trouble, hold to your convictions, don't compromise your faith, there's going to be trouble. He doesn't hide from that. As he tells us this story, he doesn't hide. Like, why would he make it up that way? He's like, look, oh, by, you need to hold your convictions, and when you do, there's going to be trouble. Listen, when you hold to your convictions and your beliefs, there likely will be trouble, and there could be difficulty. Yesterday, we had another work day. We made a lot of progress. We really did. I, you know, I just feel so exhilarated. I feel so uplifted when we finish up those work days. I'm physically, I'm tired, you know. I do most of the work, of course, so... I walk around a lot, I gotta tell you right now, okay? So, but uh, we got a lot done. A lot of small things, but important things that needed to get done. And, I, and now, I was talking with someone at the workday, and they were telling me that when they were young and growing up here in the city, uh, they went to church and their family went to church, and their family were very committed to faith in God. And they said, yeah, you know what? You know, I would behave often you know, a little different than some other kids. He goes, and the other kids, I would like stand by my faith. And the other kids, they would try and get me to curse. They would even like try and bribe me and give me a dollar if I would curse, right? But I didn't. I, I, I wouldn't curse. You know, I would stand by my faith, even if they offered me the money. Of course, I had just recently visited the person's home with my wife and my kids, and we had dinner with them, and they live in a really nice house. So I'm thinking, man, he must have been cursing up a storm, right? <laughs> A dollar for cursing, two dollars for cursing in front of the teacher, right? I didn't have such an opportunity available to me in Brooklyn. Everybody cursed. Even my priest every now and then would curse. I'm not joking. <laughs> Listen, Daniel didn't tell the Jewish exiles, live godly lives and nothing's going to happen. Cool. Peaches and cream. Just trust in God. No. Huh? But he didn't stop there. He went on to tell them, but I'm telling you now. And this is why I believe it was the peace. This is why God had it happen like this. This is why Daniel, God inspired Daniel to record it this way. He said, but listen, Jesus, God, of course, God will be with you in the fire. We know that to be in our time. Jesus will be with us in the fire. John chapter 16, verse 31 through 33. Jesus asked, do you finally believe? But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when you will be scattered. He's talking to his followers. Each one is going to go his own way leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you will have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You know, 
Jesus didn't try and hide that fact either, that there's going to be troubles, and there's going to be difficulties, and there's going to be confusion, right? And you know what? When we get it here, what about other places? In, in my seminary, I've talked to Christy about this. I have a young woman who now, she's here about a year and a half, Jocelyn. I remember sitting with her last summer, and literally as her village is being bombed in Syria, she, she got some pictures. And she's sitting there holding her phone, and she's showing me pictures of her home that was bombed in Syria, maybe like about 30 minutes earlier, an hour earlier. Syria is 10% Christians, and many of them are being persecuted. And, and, and more than any other population in Syria, they're being killed and persecuted. Across the whole Middle East, hundreds of thousands of Christians are being killed. And they're holding to their faith right to the end. Isn't that incredible, huh? Right to the end. This is who we are, right? We give our lives. We give. I say it. Dogs bark, fishes swim, and Christians give. We give all that we have to honor God. We hold to our faith. Now, I last deliverance. Worship him, why don't you come on up and I will finish this out. Deliverance is coming. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, same Old Testament. He talks about the Jews being exiled in Babylon, and he calls it a furnace of affliction, right? So Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were actually thrown into a fiery furnace, but the rest of the Jewish population were going through this furnace of affliction in their lives. And you see Daniel's telling them, whatever you're going through, hold to your faith in God. So what why are all these empires gone, but we still have this Jewish tradition and this faith that comes off from the Jews and transcends into what we know today? Because they, they held to this. What I'm telling you, they held to. Daniel's words, hold on. Deliverance is coming. There is hope. Don't let go of your faith. God can and will deliver you. So first, you know, so... The chapter ends with the king admitting there's no other God who will be able to deliver like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see this word deliverance going verse after verse after verse. They're talking about deliverance. And Daniel encourages them that God will be with you in the fire. And then he encourages them with, and the day is coming when God will deliver you from the fire altogether. And that's what's happened, right? After 70 years... Unthinkably, the Jews were allowed to return home to their promised land, and they were set free from Babylon, right? And Daniel's message was, hang in there, deliverance is coming. And that's the message God has for you today. Hang in there. Hold to your faith. Do not compromise your faith. Do not turn around and, and just, you know, acquiesce to the crowd. Do not think about the future with anxiety and depression and see God as this kind of accessory who's incapable and incompetent. But see the God of the Jews, see the, your God, see the God that delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See Daniel's God that he can and he will deliver you as he has millions and millions of people through the ages. Now, why don't you stand with me? We'll wrap it up. Living a godly life in an ungodly world is hard. It is hard. I say it all the time. I'm just, you know, I, if you're with me, I always tell you, look, it's going to be hard to step out and live a life where you're trusting in Jesus. But here's my thing. It's harder not to. I've done both, and I tell you, it's harder not to, isn't it? Look, I want you to remember these few things, and it's going to help you tremendously. One, earth is not our true home. It is not your true home. Two, Jesus will always be with us. He will always be with us 
even in the most difficult, fiery trials in life, yes? And one day God will deliver us from all of this and he will take us home to be in glory, yes? And if you are in here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've had all these different thoughts and maybe you've never thought anything, I want to invite you today to turn from the way you've been living, to turn from the way you're used to thinking, to turn from that thing. You're, you're living that way is missing God's target. It's missing what God has for you, what he's called you and commanded you, what he's made you for, huh? And turn to God. Ask him to forgive you for living that way. Begin now to even ponder and think about the giving of your affections and your love and, and your dreams to God now. Know that I want to have God in the center of my thoughts as I think about my future and know that I can do that because I believe right now that Jesus gave his life for me, that Jesus took my sins on the cross, that Jesus was raised from the grave, that Jesus right now is at the right hand of God in heaven making a place for me to go to have my eternity with my Father in heaven. Amen.